Welcome to the Richard Roper Podcast. I am Richard Roper. Thanks, as always, to everybody who's listening, subscribing, downloading, sharing, all that great stuff. We really, really appreciate it. It is time to say goodbye. Not me saying goodbye, but it's time for Succession to say goodbye and Ted Lasso to say goodbye. It's one of those weeks where there are these series finales, Barry as well, but we're going to concentrate really on uh, Succession and Ted Lasso. And talk about series finales in general and um, how some people get so passionate about the last episode of certain series, some of the best of the 21st century we're going to talk about, and also my overall philosophy, which sometimes gets people a little mad at me when I when I talk about how I feel about series finales just as a, as a whole. But that's what I'm here for, right? Also, uh, the latest Spider-Man movie is out. There's a new ESPN 30 for 30 documentary coming out. Uh, there's another horror movie hitting theaters. I'll have reviews of all of those and more. But before we get into it, of course, it's time for your reminder that the Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's online business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business's success because they believe that today's online world is your online opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com to get started today. The disgusting feathers. Don't, don't call us that. Don't. It's heavily ironized, Greg. Okay, okay I'm kidding. I really do like her. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, she's used all the display towels in the bathroom and other sopping wet. She's gabbling about herself and posting on social media. <laughs> she's asking people personal questions and, uh, and she's wolfing all the canapes like a famished warthog. People are overreacting. Okay, she brought a normal sort of you handbag. You are a laughingstock in polite society. You will never go to the opera again. Maybe we should go. Oh, are you okay? What what happened? Nothing. I just asked Logan for a selfie. You asked Logan for a selfie? Yeah. I said congrats on the big deal and I was like, Karching, am I right? I was being I was being funny. All right, that's a clip from a succession which had its uh, finale Sunday night, uh, four seasons on HBO. It became one of those shows that uh so many people were talking about in the media, uh, all the the Twitterverse and all of that. Maybe even uh, beyond the extent of its viewership. It was a hit series, but it wasn't one of the biggest hits in the history of HBO. Did very well, but also, you know, struck a certain nerve uh, with a with a key demographic, which includes a lot of people in the media, because, of course, it was about a family with a media empire. I thought it was a great show, uh, brilliantly done. It's proof, once again, that you can make great art, whether it's television or movies or whatever the case may be, about truly awful people. This is one of those shows. That some, a couple of friends of mine, actually, who I thought would have loved this show, actually were turned off by it because they said, you know, there's nobody to root for here. There's no good guys. Because even in, you know, if you look at a, a movie like Goodfellas, uh, where, again, just about everybody's a gangster or, you know, in business with a gangster, or The Sopranos, there were different levels, I guess, of like in, in The Sopranos, I guess, different levels of uh, criminal behavior. Tony Soprano was a killer, literally a killer, a mobster, uh, and yet he wasn't as bad as some of the other characters. So there was always, I don't know, you found a way to root for him. 
Uh, same thing we saw in Breaking Bad, uh, you know, where Brian Cranston's uh, uh, Walter White started off as this mild-mannered uh, high school chemistry teacher and then became the one who knocks, the one that everybody's afraid of. And yet there were people to root for, certainly the Jesse character uh, and, and many other characters throughout the arc of Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul. There were a lot of sympathetic notes and layers to a lot of characters. Succession, man, everybody's just awful. I mean, again, you can make, you know, like Connor, the oldest son, is more of a buffoon than a schemer and a manipulator. The other three Roy children are just different levels of uh, narcissistic, selfish, backstabbing, cunning, manipulative, uh, ruthless individuals who care only about themselves. And certainly that would be the case with Tom and, and even Cousin Greg. It was still brilliantly done. A lot of dark comedy. As far as the finale, it went, uh, if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, you, you know, I, I, I got to get into some of what happened. You know, there was the big kind of twist at the end and Ken, Kendall Roy, who it's always been primarily about whether or not he was going to be the true successor to his father, Logan Roy. And then the rug was pulled out from under him and all three of the children, although Shiv kind of made one last minute, uh, I guess you could say, uh, bargain with the devil. She might end up back with her husband. But, you know, shows like that, it was, it's not really about, oh, who's going to be the, the heir to the throne. All of those bratty grown-up kids, whether or not they now are going to have any role in their in their father, the company their father founded, and probably only Shiv will, the other ones are out. They're walking away, not with millions, but probably closer to billions of dollars, at least tens of millions of dollars. They're wealthy beyond anybody's imagination. They're young people who could do a million different things if they want to. So it was just, it's sort of like, you know, when people got into Game of Thrones, it wasn't, the, the game wasn't about just who's going to get the throne. It was everything that takes place leading up to that and all the machinations and all the deceptions, all the twists and turns and all of the great, rich, beautiful dialogue and by the way the writers strike is still going on and we're going to start missing those great writers pretty soon when the well runs dry and that's what succession was so brilliant at and and the social commentary and the social satire and yes the glimpse behind closed doors into that 0.001% we love shows about the rich and sometimes famous whether it's you know the period pieces like Bridgerton or the reality shows about you know people flipping eight million dollar homes, or the world of Succession, and uh, obviously, Succession was a little bit of a takeoff on uh, the Murdoch family and other uh, media empires, the Maxwell, Robert Maxwell, uh, that family. Uh, if you don't know that story, that's the guy that was a one of Mur Rupert Murdoch's main rivals, uh, and his daughter's the one that was involved with the whole Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, horrific scandal so there was some takeoff on that or you know uh commentary on these real life families but i thought it was brilliantly done and i also think that four seasons was enough for succession a lot of series uh over the years especially network series especially when there are deals when if you hit a certain number of episodes like the magic number of 100 there's more money to be made and reruns as we used to call them in syndication so many shows I think ran past their expiration date. And you might recall too, we've talked a lot about uh, Seinfeld and you know Jerry Seinfeld, he put an end to Seinfeld uh, in the late 90s, uh, he and Larry David. That was still the number one show on television. I think there's some you know, uh, misconceptions out there. Larry King famously asked Jerry Seinfeld about his show getting canceled. And Jerry was like, what are you talking about? We didn't get canceled. 
Uh, because maybe the show had run its course. That's what Jerry felt. He's like, I don't want these characters in their 50s still living, you know, across the hall from each other and popping in on each other's apartments. That'd be just sad. Uh, so he put an end to it. But in most cases, it's the series. They kind of go past their prime. You can see the ratings start to dip and they get canceled. I think with Succession, we don't need eight years of Succession. Uh, there's already been some talk about a movie. We don't need a Succession movie. Almost every time they've done a movie, from a TV series, whether it's the X-Files movies or Veronica Mars, it's it turns out that we didn't need to do it. I like The Many Saints of Newark, which was the prequel, if you will, spiritual pre prequel to The Sopranos. I was glad they, they didn't try to do a follow-up. You really couldn't. Uh, but I think Succession, uh, the four years was enough. And I would also say that three seasons was the right amount for Ted Lasso. Everything okay, Ted? Uh, Henry got bullied at school this morning. If we leave right now and take the connecting flight through Paris, we can be in Kansas by noon, and that punk's house will be in ashes by 12.30. No, no. Best thing you can do with bullies is ignore them. Then you sneak into their house at 4 a.m., which, statistically speaking, is the hour people are least prepared to defend themselves. Correct. And once you're standing over them, as they sleep in their bed, you start to beat them with a thick, heavy rope soaked in red paint, pummeling them over and over until they wake, confusing the paint for their own blood. And then you start to beat them again. Mm. Yeah. You know, I may just hold off on anything like that until I connect with Michelle and just get the details, see what actually happened. You know, you know. All right, yeah, fair enough. Uh, what an amazing story this is, guys. The Ted Lasso story, the Ted Lasso character that Jason Sudeikis so brilliantly brought to life, as you probably know, was originally conceived for a series of ads for NBC about soccer coming to Channel 5 in your neighborhood, Channel 5 in Chicago, Channel 4 or elsewhere. And not the first time commercial characters have been given TV vehicles. They tried to make one out of the Geico cavemen back in the day. Uh, but certainly the best. They did an incredible job because the Ted Lasso character as originally conceived was kind of a buffoon and a little bit crass and almost off-putting. And they almost immediately, listen, there are there are certainly a kind of a buffoon aspect or certainly a fish-out-of-water aspect, especially in the early going. Uh, the reason Ted was brought across the pond was because they, they it was kind of the plot of Major League. They wanted the franchise to fail. And then, of course, things took a turn very quickly. And I think three seasons was just the right length for Ted Lasso. It took us all by surprise. First of all, the, again, the quality of the writing, the incredible cast. And one of the brilliant things I think they did, I mean, a lot of people knew Jason Sudeikis, but most of the actors playing the members of the team, uh, the administration, maybe known a little bit uh, in their homeland because most of them are British and from other places as well, but not known to American audiences. So, you know, sometimes when that happens with the show, uh, as was the case with Succession, Brian Cox, Logan Roy was pretty well known. The rest of the actors have done stuff, but we're not super, super famous. It's almost easier to buy them as those characters. And with, with Ted Lasso, uh, you know, it started off as a comedy. And in the first season, I think most of the episodes were 32, 33, 34 minutes. Uh, it became as much of a drama as a comedy as time went on. And we were getting 45-minute episodes, 50, even past an hour. Now, some people, you know, some people kind of felt they were overdoing it with the sentimentality, with all the story threads. There were so many characters who were given storylines. Uh, you know, part of that is keeping the actors happy. 
uh, saying, you know, let's give let's give this guy a story arc. Let's give this character. Uh, Keely's going to have a, a, a different, you know, adventure. And th- that would sometimes then keep them from all being in the same room at the same time. So they could be the stars of their own storylines. I thought it was brilliantly done. I thought they always achieved this delicate balance between being living in, you know, existing in somewhat akin. This is a realistic world of football, if you will, uh, and, and the passion for it, the different levels and the game itself. But the sports scenes, the action sequences weren't why people fell in love with Ted Lasso. I mean, yes, we got involved in the game sometimes. It was the heroes and the villains. And you talk about uh, the antithesis of succession. Uh, there were some villains, of course, in Ted Lasso, but there were about 15 lovable characters that we just you know, wanted to spend more time with. And I think leaving them wanting more is the way to go. Uh, the, the thing about Ted Lasso that was going to have to be addressed, and it finally was addressed in this season, uh, was either Ted was going to have to go home or we were going to start maybe not feeling so much sympathy for him because he's a father and his young son misses him and he misses his son and he's still in love with his wife. He's accomplished everything he needed to do as a coach, he's restored his big name. He could probably come go back to America and be either a soccer coach or a football coach. If he had stayed, it would have seemed selfish. Whereas when he when he first went, it was like, well, he needed the work, and this was about the only option for him, and it was a new adventure. So either they're going to have to continue Ted Lasso without Ted Lasso, which, you know, some series have done that. They've continued on without one or more of the lead actors, but I don't think that's something that people are dying to see. You could certainly do a spinoff with Roy Kent or with other characters. I think it would be lesser work. So uh, the series finale ties up a lot of loose ends. And uh, yeah, spoiler alert, Ted goes home. And I think they handled it perfectly. And they hand, they tied up a lot of the stories. There's still a few uh, things kind of left up in the air. You know, Sometimes with series finales, there's too much of trying to keep everything really uh, you know, tied up. You know, Everybody gets married. Everybody has a baby. Everybody does this or that. I think with Ted Lasso, it was handled beautifully. You know, I have gone on so long here. We got to take a break pretty soon. So I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take a break and we're going to do the reviews because the reviews are of a timely nature. Hopefully you'll be listening to this right around the time this stuff is hitting the streaming world or... Um, arriving in theaters and we will in maybe the next podcast or one shortly thereafter uh, we'll expand on the whole idea of series finales we'll talk about some of the best and some of the worst uh, series finales of the 21st century I've done my my due diligence I've got a list for you guys and some of the things I've written about it and we'll get into my whole overall philosophy so that, ooh, that was just a tease I said I was going to talk about that in this episode and here we are ready to hear about Portillo's. Let's take a break. All right, it's time to tell you about Portillo's, the greatest single fast casual cuisine experience you're ever having, ever in your life. Let's talk about the hot dogs and all the famous Chicago ingredients. They'll do it for you so you don't have to worry about getting it wrong. That includes the poppy seed bun. Then we could talk about the Italian beef, the sausage, and the fries, the salad, the chicken, you name it, all topped up, of course, with the legendary Portillo's chocolate cake. It's fast casual. That means it's better than fast food. You can sit down if you go to one of the restaurants, but it's still super casual. 
And you can order anywhere in the country via Portillo's.com. That's P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com. Once again, P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com. Ask your friends from Chicago about it, Portillo's.com. Get out of here. Oh, when? So wait a minute. There's an elite crew with all the best spider people in it? Uh, who's the new guy? This is unbelievable. This is the lobby. Miguel O'Hara. The whole thing was his idea. What's the guy got to do to join this spider team? You can never be part of this. Don't even get me started on Doctor Strange and the little nerd back on Earth 1999 99. Come on, go easy on the kid. He had a terrible teacher. Peter. Miles. Mayday. You have a baby? I have a baby. I'll take it from here. All stations, stop Spider-Man. You? You want me? And then I looked at my uncle and... Uh, let me guess. He died. Okay, that is Spider-Man... Across the Spider-Verse. I'm going to get that title wrong somewhere because there's Into the Multiverse and Beyond the Spider-Verse, but this is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. This is the sequel to the 2018 animated adventure, the story of Miles Morales, that won the Academy Award for Best Animated Film, and deservedly so. Now we've got the sequel, and I'll tell you this. First of all, I think it's going to be a huge hit. I want to talk a little bit about the screening. As I'm recording this, this is uh, I, I saw it about a week before it, it, it opened. And um, when it comes to my reviews, I do not incorporate the audience's reaction. I've I told you guys this story before, the way things kind of work out. Sometimes I get links to movies and watch them at home in advance. Uh, often there, there's a private screening room here in Chicago that just a couple of critics are usually at. Then very often, especially for the bigger movies, uh, there's a couple of rows set aside for the press, and then they invite, uh, I don't know where they get these people, quite frankly. I don't know where they find these people, but they're wonderful people, and we love them. Uh, whether it's through Fandango or a radio promotion or something online, be among the first to see uh, Spider-Man. So that when I get to the theater, you know, 10 minutes before the start of the movie, there are people that have been waiting in line for like two hours, which reminds me of how lucky I am to have this job, how excited people are to see movies in advance. So for the screening of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, it was jam-packed, every single seat taken, front row, back row, and especially in the last, in the back rows, I don't know, again, where they get the list of, of guests for this, but it had to be from some sort of either Comic-Con or fan page or whatever, because, man, these people were so into it. From the moment the lights went down and the sound came up and throughout the movie, and there are tons of Easter eggs and references and inside jokes and different callbacks to different Spider-Man movies and the entire universe, and people sometimes would cheer and clap, which I love. I love that experience. It reminds me of how cool my job is and how great it is for us to see movies, especially these big summer movies, as a communal experience. It's not going to affect my review. I've also, I've been at screenings of movies where everyone's cheering and clapping and I'm like, I, I don't know what you're cheering at because this is garbage. Uh, but in this case, I happen to agree with the audience. Uh, this movie is just slam bang, jam packed, wall to wall entertainment. Uh, it's too long at two hours and 20 minutes, but there's a lot going on here because we've got Miles who's now 15. He's a teenager. 
He's got his parents, uh, Jefferson and Rio, who, you know, they just think he's a, a really smart kid who keeps getting into trouble and is perpetually late, and they're grounding him. And in the meantime, Spider-Man, he's Spider-Man, is fighting crime in Brooklyn and then gets kind of sucked into the Spider-Verse. Uh, Gwen Stacy, uh, who isn't supposed to see him anymore because that's crossing universes, she drops in on him. And then we're just introduced to a host of other Spider-Men, Spider-Women, uh, spider animals, believe it or not, a, a spider T-Rex. And what's really cool about this film is the visual style. The CG animation, of course, is there, but they switch palettes all the time and reflect different types of visuals. There's a version of Vulture that comes from the Renaissance, so it kind of looks like a Renaissance sketch uh, come to life. Uh, the scenes with uh, Gwen and her father, police captain played, uh, voiced by Shea Wiggum, those scenes are done in kind of a 50s, uh, saturated color, almost faded uh, watercolor look. There's a uh, a punk version of Spider-Man, uh, Brit uh, punk Spidey. Uh, and every time he's on screen, it looks kind of like the cover of a 1980s or you know late 70s fanzine. Uh, there are a couple of moments where we get live action characters. I don't want to spoil it, but live action characters are, are pop into the to the Spider Verse. You name it, and there's some version of Spider Man that gets paid homage to, if you will. I thought they overdid it again with the two hour and twenty minute uh, running time. Some of the action sequences, they're I mean they're beautifully done, but any of these movies, even when they're changing the visual styles and dropping in cool comic book type title cards, we've seen it all before. Two of them in particular, I thought, action sequences went on for too long. And also, I should note, this is the second uh, chapter in a trilogy, and it's really just the first half of a film, like they did with um, Twilight and Harry Potter, and they're doing with Dune right now. So after two hours and 20 minutes, it literally says to be continued. Uh, so you've got to know that going in, because if not, you're thinking, how are they going to wrap all this up? There's so much going on. Uh, there's a lot in here about uh, the canon of comic books and the certain rules of the universe, which we've seen in other Marvel movies, and uh, we also see them in time travel movies. There's always some authority figure saying, these are the rules. You can't break the rules. You can't mess either with the timeline or go through this portal. If you do, the entire universe will collapse onto itself. Marty McFly was told that. I mean, every, you know, we've seen this in a million time travel and superhero movies. So there's always the authority figure saying, you can't do that. If you do that, if you try to save that one person or alter that one tragedy, millions could die. That's always the choice, right? And then there's always the young upstart idealistic hero who says, you think I can't do that? Watch me. I'm going to do that. So there's a lot there. Uh, the relationship between uh, Gwen and Miles is great because, um, as Gwen points out, there have been a thousand Spider-Man uh, stories with uh, Gwen and Spider-Man, and it never ends well, but maybe this time it will. But there's as much of a friendship there, and their bond is really tight because unless they're in the multiverse with all the other Spideys of the world in their own respective real worlds, which are separate, by the way, uh, whether it's uh, Gwen with her father, Miles with his parents, the authority figures in their lives, just all their friends, nobody knows what they're going through, even if they know who they are and the identity has not been revealed in some cases, but they're the only two, you know, basically about the same age, although Gwen's a little more mature, a little more advanced in her thinking and emotions uh, than Miles, but they're the only two who really understand that. So there's that unique bond. 
again, I thought it was too long, but it's also beautifully done. And um, you do please see it uh, in a theater, the largest screen possible. Uh, there are so many things happening in every corner of the screen that after you do see it in the theater, especially if you're a huge fan of the the entire canon of Spider-Man comics and all of that, you're going to eventually want to watch this at home and you'll be pausing it because there, there are, again, I don't want to give too much away, but there are little graphics that pop in, little things that go by deliberately so fast that you're like, wait a minute, I think I just missed something, even though you're kind of subconsciously picking it up. So uh, beautifully done. Check it out. It certainly will be a big hit. I also want to mention a much smaller movie, but I guarantee you will do well at the box office. They almost always do. And it's The Boogeyman. It's kind of the latest uh, version of the story of a boogeyman, of that unseen monster in the closet under the bed lurking down the hallway. And there's always usually the youngest child who is convinced it's real and nobody else does believe it's real except for it is real. Uh, this is The Boogeyman is actually based on a, a Stephen King short story from a long, long time ago. And the short story basically is a guy talking to his therapist about the deaths of his uh, three children and and how he's been you know accused of it and blamed for it but it's really you know a boogeyman doing it it's sort of an internal monologue or a two-hander if you will so for and they've they've turned it into they turned it into a short uh film a couple of different times uh and i, I think there was an attempt to make it there was a, uh, an attempt to make it into a full-length theatrical play but they did a really nice job with this feature-length version of the boogeyman you have to expand the story and they did a great job with that uh, so once again, Stephen McKing, Stephen King, Stephen McKing, ah, that must be the Irish version. Once again, Stephen King uh, provides the source material for some really, really uh, chilling and smart, interesting horror. Uh, Chris Messina, who's been in a bunch of stuff, you've seen him in, uh, he just was, uh, he just played David Falk, the agent in the Air movie. Uh, he plays the therapist here. He's recently widowed. He's got a teenage daughter. Sophie Thatcher plays Sadie. Uh, Sophie Thatcher's from uh, Yellow Jackets. And then there's Vivian uh, Lyra Blair who plays Little Sawyer, the little girl who's convinced there's a there's a monster in the closet. Uh, and he's a therapist who's grieving so heavily for his wife that he's not really paying enough attention to what is going on with his children. And it kind of is left up to Sadie, the teenage daughter, to investigate what's happening with the boogeyman. And um, it, it's it's dark. It's interesting. It leads up to some conclusions that we probably know are coming. But again, with these types of movies, just like Evil Dead Rises, it's it's all about that journey and kind of, of course, leaves things a little bit open for a sequel. Uh, the Boogeyman, if you're looking to get scared, uh, I have to warn you away from another uh, entry. This is actually a Netflix series called FUBAR, which uh, stands up stands for uh, F up beyond all recognition, FUBAR. Well, you used to hear that a lot, military terms or whatever. So this is Arnold Schwarzenegger's first dramatic television series. He's done other stuff, obviously. He was on The Apprentice. Uh, but And there's, by the way, there's a good documentary series about Arnold coming out soon too. But this is his first dramatic series. It's on Netflix. They spent a lot of money on it. And it's garbage. It's so bad. It's shockingly terrible. Um, Arnold's always going to be Arnold, you know, he's charming as can be, but the premise you guys of FUBAR is so dusty, uh, so crusty, so played out. He literally plays Arnold's guy. He's Luke and he's on the verge of retirement from the CIA. Cause let's face it. Arnold looks like he's on the verge of retirement. I mean, listen, he could still, you know, punch your lights out, but okay. So he's got the Liam Neeson type of role, the Clint Eastwood role, you know, the aging 
legend in the organization, and he's going to do one last job, the obligatory one last job, and this is when this series instantly flies off the rails. In the premiere, his whole life, Luke has, you know, had a cover story that he runs a series of fitness stores, you know, fitness centers, exercise, whatever, which is kind of fitting for, for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, he's divorced because he was married to the job. His wife thought he was always traveling for the business business, which makes very little sense. But okay, that was his cover story. And she finally just got tired of not being there. And then his grown daughter has supposedly had her own career, his daughter, Emily. But it turns out she's also in the CIA. And they find that out when they end up in the same place at the same time. So for like 10 years, the greatest CIA operative in the world, in the country, uh, and his daughter, who's, you know, equally, you know, uh, talented, uh, a killing machine, clever. They never knew that each other were in the CIA, and now they have to team up and work on a big job together, which makes zero sense. The wisecracks, so to speak, in this series are just deadly. I mean, the dialogue is just deadly, guys. The action, you know, it's 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 well done uh, because they spent a lot of money on it. But you know, we get the you know the obligatory ruthless mastermind cult-like uh, leader who wants to blow up the world and he's got all you know all these paramilitary paramilitary stuff going on and it, it's just so tired we've seen this story so many times before uh so fubar listen I, I some people have already told me i'm nuts with my review and they're having a great time with it if you if you want to completely turn your brain off i guess but i think it's maybe the worst series of 2023 Let's end on a high note, then. This is uh, ESPN. I am such a huge fan of the 30 for 30 documentary series, which have been around for years now. Uh, sometimes they're one-shots. Sometimes they're multiple-part series. What I find fascinating is uh, there are some some of them, and I know from the start I'm going to be really, really fascinated because of the subject matter and because it's about baseball or football or the primary sports that I've always been most drawn to. But there are other ones where you don't think you'd be that interested, but they just do such a great job. They had some of the best filmmakers in the world uh, doing these movies. And that brings us to their latest. It's called The Luckiest Guy in the World. It's ESPN 30 for 30. It's a four-parter. Uh, it's directed by Steve James of Hoop Dreams and The Interrupters, you know, one of our great documentarians. And it is about Bill Walton. It's a four-part series about Bill Walton. They liked Bill as a basketball player. They just didn't agree with his views off the court. They would blame it on the length of my hair. They would blame it on who I voted for. I vote in every election. I express my feelings. I'm an engaged citizen. I'm part of a team. What is more mainstream than that? 30 for 30 presents The Luckiest Guy in the World, June 6th at 8 Eastern on ESPN. You know, for a lot of younger folks out there, uh, you think of Bill Walton as this, you know, seven foot tall. He always claimed he was 6'11", but he's about seven too. This seven foot tall, aging hippie, uh, free spirit who, when he does color commentary on basketball games, goes off on tangents where you're like, what are you even talking about? How much pot did you smoke today? Uh, he does a lot of, uh, re in recent years, he's done stuff with Jason Benetti. It's been great because Jason, who's a local Chicago guy, but has also done a ton of national stuff, is is one of the next generation's absolutely world-class best play-by-play -play guys in the world. And he can do any sport. It's incredible. You'll see him doing a Florida State football game. Then he's doing a, a baseball game on Fox. And then he's over here uh, doing basketball. And Jason's the perfect straight man for Bill Walton. But there are other people who are just like, if Bill Walton is going to be doing the color commentary on this game, I'm turning the sound down or I'm leaving. What you might not know, and I know a lot of people do if you're if you're a basketball fan, is 
the story of Bill Walton, which is just incredible because in the late 60s, early 70s, he was considered maybe the best big man on the planet other than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He grew up in California. He went to UCLA following in Kareem's footsteps, won two national two national championships with UCLA. They won 88 games in a row, which is astonishing because we rarely get now a team that can go through a single season undefeated. They won 88 games in a row. He was the player of the year. Two t- it was just he was dominant. He could play defense. He could pass. He was amazing off the glass. You get a rebound and immediately look to throw it to somebody. I mean, if you were on the team with Bill Walton, you had to keep your eyes open. Uh, and then was, you know, a, a number one pro prospect and, and played for the Portland Trailblazers. Kind of the perfect place for him and his, you know, kind of hippie persona. Uh, Bill Walton uh, became best friends. You know, the, He was the world's tallest Grateful Dead fan, so it gets into all that. Back in his college days, he was involved a lot with protests and stuff. And then it follows the the documentary follows us through follows Bill Walton through his pro career. He was one he's you know considered one of the great big men of all time, but he was plagued by injuries. He had just a myriad of injuries. Uh, rarely played an entire season. Sometimes had to take an entire season off. Still managed to win an MVP award with the Trailblazers and a World Championship with the Portland Trailblazers, uh, which you know at the time they were a young team, uh, a, a young franchise. They haven't done it since then. There's great footage of him, you know, doing battle with Kareem and Julius Irving and all the greats from back in the day. Uh, And then he kind of looked like he was going to have to retire. I mean, this guy had so many surgeries and mostly foot and ankle problems. And for a big man, you know, he couldn't put his foot down literally without being in excruciating pain. But it was also a time when orthopedic surgery was nothing 50 years ago like it is today. So there were some rumblings that you know these injuries weren't real they were real so there was a lot of you know conjecture is is he more interested in just being bill walton the hippie than bill walton the competitor he was a great competitor and then we follow him he ends up with the boston celtics and wins a championship with the celtics i loved this series it's called the luckiest guy in the world because that's what bill walton says about himself he's got four sons he's very close with his wife Lori. he's been with second wife but they've been together for like 30 plus years and he still maintains that kind of sense of uh, wonder and awe. And it's also fascinating because you know, people will say that Bill Walton talks more than I do. And I'm talking to you guys right now. But the fascinating thing is until he was about 28 or 29, Bill Walton almost never spoke in public or spoke very briefly in interviews and other situations because he had a terrible, terrible stutter. And this got him a reputation of being sometimes aloof with the press and distant and kind of in his own world. And it was because he just couldn't get the words out. And he just worked really, really hard on that. Uh, Worked with some broadcasters and other people who helped him and really pretty much overcame it. And his son's joke, that's why he won't stop talking now because it took him 30 years to have a chance to talk. So it's a, it's a, it's a story of triumph. And he keeps saying he's the luckiest guy in the world, even though he's been through a lot of adversarial situations. He went broke at one point, then kind of, you know, had another comeback. He's had many, many different lives. I loved it. I think he's a fascinating character. The world is a better place and a more interesting place with Bill Walton in it. So we're going to end on that note. It's called The Luckiest Guy in the World, four-part ESPN 30 for 30 documentary series. We'll wrap it up now, guys. Uh, my apologies again for not getting into more of the uh, the best uh, series finales of all time. But the good thing is there's always another podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening. We'll talk soon.